Welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz and Adam, I spent the day laughing about ant corruption. I don't know if you heard that story. I'm sure you did, but uh, yeah, I couldn't let it go. It's like, if you know, if you guys need proofreaders, uh, I know a couple of dudes in Guelph you can call that focus on political things that might be able to help for a fee. And corruption, and corruption in Ottawa. Ottawa. <laughs> Ottawa. Ottawa. When you in Ottawa last time. <laughs> it's a regional accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, back in uh, Ottawa, everything's going down. I mean, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, no, I won't say anything. It's, it's next week. It's fish in a barrel. All right. Open Source is the CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be the Communist Party of Canada's Guelph candidate, Tristan Deneen, who will kick off our 2021 federal election coverage. That will be at the bottom of the hour. Before that, we will talk about the latest developments around the provincial COVID-19 response now that we're less than two weeks away from the start of the school year. But first, uh, we go back to Afghanistan, where the Taliban has now officially taken over. Uh, briefing on Wednesday morning with uh, the ministers of uh, foreign affairs and national defense. Uh, and, and other representatives of the government warn that the situation in Afghanistan is growing more precarious by the hour. The U.S. have set a hard deadline of Tuesday, so August the 31st, to end all evacuation efforts from the uh, Kabul airport, which um, will almost definitely not be named after the former president who mm-hmm. uh, was the president after the after the Taliban fell last time, but uh, it is becoming more dangerous. Uh, the U.S. State Department says there are about 1,500 Americans there who haven't been pulled out yet. Um, and that's to say nothing about all the people, the, all, all the Afghani citizens who are just concerned about the return of the Taliban. Uh, not great. Not great in Afghanistan right now. Yeah, I'm fairly sure that the Americans don't want to be there on September 11th, which was the initial pullout date. Ages ago, I can't remember when that changed, simply because it's uh, pretty much a loss. I know they don't want to talk about it like that, but it's, you probably seen some of the comparative pictures to the fall of Saigon and how identical some of the, the photos are. In fact, the I think mm-hmm. they're using the same kind of chopper in some instances, but all of that aside, yeah, the, it's precarious to say the least, and uh Canada was pretty soundly criticized for its inability to get people out. Initially, it was like, you're supposed to just, okay, go to the airport and yell Canada, and hopefully (laughs) somebody will get, and judging by the scenes on TV, like, there's no, I mean, it's just impossible, right? There's there's no way that's going to work. And then, of course, there's these stories about the guy going through the sewage ditch. Now now that's the, the, uh, path i guess to the airport it's un unbelievable oh and yeah you're supposed to wear red now mm-hmm. uh so in the in the middle of the chaos and yet there there seems to be groups particularly the u.s one and then I, I read something about the french commandos who gathered everybody up 
to the French embassy, loaded them all on buses, just drove straight through all the Taliban checkpoints, got everybody to their plane, and boom, they're gone. I don't know if that would happen as easily now as a few days ago, but there's no messing around. You know, if you want to get people out, you need your special forces or your commandos. Now, supposedly, the I, I would assume it's the JTF are in there from Canada, but uh, it's it's not sounding good. There are more people getting out. I guess a plane leaves every 45 minutes from, from various countries. But mm-hmm. it's it is definitely collapsing, and all it's going to take, I think, for it to completely collapse because there is where the countdown's on now. A few more days is one of the terrorist groups that the Taliban uh, don't seem to mind that are in Afghanistan. Particularly, I'd never heard of ISIS K until this yeah. past week. So this is it's like ISIS plus. This is ISIS K, who are the latest that want to you know just cause chaos, take shots at Americans and allies, and they they don't care, right? They're, they don't. Mm. They don't care. I mean, the Taliban definitely don't care. They're giving them a little bit of leeway to get out. And I this, you know, there was the, the deal that was signed, right, with, uh, well, in Trump's day. Well, we can get into that a bit in a bit, I guess. <laughs> it doesn't really matter at this point. Yeah, ISIS-K is the West Coast Avengers of ISIS. It's, uh, you know, they are ISIS, but it's all the, like, the B team. Anyway, um, I've... Two or three comic book readers who listen to the show got yeah, that. Exactly. Um, <laughs> no, to to be serious though, it yeah, it, that would be a spark that would set things off. Like think things kind of like proceeding like in a very, despite the initial craziness, like people hanging onto the side of airplanes and then falling to their deaths. It, you know, that was bad. But I mean, since then we've we're talking about like 70, 80, 90,000 people that have been gotten out without any casualties so far. But all they, all it would take to ruin that is somebody along the fence line, even, even if they're not shooting at anyone, but you like, if you're like, just like standing somewhere near where there's a big crowd of people along the fence and then taking out your AK and shooting it in the air, that would like light off a powder keg. Um, and I think that's very much the, the danger here the the thing with the taliban too is interesting because they are very clearly on a charm offensive um we're we're not your your old-fashioned like needle in the eyes taliban although they kind of are because there are reports coming out of like them you know searching house to house for you know people who worked with the americans and and people from the west and you know enforcing good old Sharia law out in the streets. Um, but I mean, when it comes to like FaceTime with Western media, um, including like looking magnanimous, like, Oh yeah, you t- you go to the August the 31st, you get as many people out as you can. No big deal. We're the Taliban. We're known for our patients. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a matter of public relations for them. Even though of course it's like soon as like anyone, from the West is gone. They're going to go back to good old fashioned Taliban bad habits. Although even at that, I've, you know, people have been talking about like, well, are they going to ban like social media in Af- like the Taliban? Are they going to ban social media in Afghanistan? And I saw somebody uh, talking about this on CNN and it's like, well, no, they, they can't because they're like Taliban fighters who I'm, in, in so much as we talk about young people, uh, you know, Americans who were born since nine 11, now fighting in Afghanistan, it's the same for Taliban fighters. Mm-hmm. Um, they they have soldiers who don't remember the old regime, but are now fighting for the new regime, and they've been reared on social media too because they've had that access. So, it, it 
I mean, it's a horrific question, but it is an interesting question too about exactly what the Taliban will look like once they kind of have the country to themselves again. Yeah, you do see that in some of the footage. The the, the gang of mullahs are all kind of aged, but the it is it is young men <clears throat> generally mm-hmm. that are kind of standing around just waiting for waiting for orders, I suppose. But yeah, it's uh, you're saying about the Taliban's charm offensive. It's that is a for now thing, and and of course anybody that they have a hate on for is going to be in trouble and has been already. Whether you're an activist or a politician, journalists, mm-hmm. and particularly if you're female, mm-hmm. if you're if if you're a woman with you know views or have been involved in anything that the Taliban sees against their their version of things, uh, you're in trouble. So. Yeah, there was a an emergency G7 meeting. I don't know what that's going to do. The only person I heard speaking out of it was Boris Johnson. And uh, he's like, we're looking for an extension. Justin Trudeau kind of echoed that as well, that they're hoping that people will be able, be able to get safe passage beyond the deadline. Uh, mm-hmm. Good luck with that, right? Like, absolutely mm-hmm. good luck with that. I can't, can't see it happening. And, of course, there were other meetings, too. There was the... Uh, the chief the CIA chief, what's uh, Burns, William Burns, meeting with uh, one of the mullahs in secret. But if these things are never in secret, right? It leaks out eventually. It's like, oh, there was that meeting. I guess a couple. I don't know if you heard. There was a couple of uh, congressmen, Republican mm-hmm. and Democrats, snuck in and yeah, Biden supposedly blew his top over this. It's like, what are you doing? Oh, we well, we, we, we only we one steerage. Like, we didn't interrupt anything. It's like come on, like, keep your beak out, <laughs> really, well, at this point, right? Well, commanders on the ground were angry, too, because if you have, like, congressmen, um, I mean, it's not like having the Secretary of Defense or the President there, but it's still, like, high-value people that you have to dedicate some resources to making sure they get back on, get on the return flight safely, and that's, like, they just don't have the resources to be able to afford that. But I mean, that's part of that's part of the showmanship of this. And that's something I wanted to address, which is like sort of the media coverage of this, because, boy, have they come out of the woodwork in the last week. You had like Paul Wolfowitz and Paul Bremer writing op eds in like the Wall Street Journal talking about how this was bollocks. And you have Tony Blair coming out of the woodwork talking about how uh, this was blown. And, you know, you have like frankly the mainstream media and the mainstream american media uh who who are not saints when it comes to um war coverage and 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 properly putting these things in context they i mean i can't remember the last time there's been this much emphasis on afghanistan there's been more afghan coverage in the last two weeks than in the last 10 years probably and it just strikes me as just also disingenuous that um there was a cbs poll that said 81 percent of voters including 76 percent of republicans believe that america um oh sorry that was the wrong poll but uh (laughs) but uh that's on a separate thing altogether about making accommodations to bring refugees in but i mean that's another thing that's going on at the heart of this too is that everyone's like you got to get them out you got to get them out you got to get them out and then the, there's you know there's the right wing media complex that is all like Tucker Carlson the other night is talking about like here we go great replacement we're taking people out of afghanistan bring them here to replace whites and it's just like oh <laughs> it's that just, old saw yeah you know you have they're letting too many in Exactly. There's just this explosion of 
it's like spaghetti barf of of like political exposition where you have these people who failed to do Afghanistan right in the first place talking about how it's not too late to pull to not pull out and then you have all these other people who are just looking for ways to dunk on the Biden administration and then you have all these other like just people like Carlson who are you know concerned about uh you know brown people bringing terrorism into America when, you know, the simple fact of the matter is last week there's lots of terrorism already in America and a lot of it's being per- per- perpetuated by white guys. So, uh, you know, it it strikes me as kind of disingenuous that you have the, the, the American mainstream media um, talking about or, or getting all shirty about Afghanistan falling apart while their own country is kind of falling apart too. And they, they didn't seem to get you know, care too much about that last week. And the guy with the pickup truck who said he had a bomb outside the library of Congress was proof of that. Cause I didn't see a single story about that all day on the mainstream media. I, I only heard about it on like social media. So no, cause it's easy to pile on, right? Once one yeah. of them starts, it's yeah, exactly. it's, it's, it's lazy, but yeah. it's also, yeah. Trying to achieve, uh, some kind of political end to it, and it's not. I mean, it is. It is a, you know, them pulling out of uh, Afghan. Everybody pulling out of Afghanistan is is a political <laughs> is the end of a political uh, situation. But it it uh, that ends exactly how it started. What was that? What's that meme making the rounds? Twenty years, trillions of dollars, four presidents, countless lives, to replace the Taliban with the Taliban. I mean, there's truth to that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no, there's no change other than they they. They do social media now, and a lot more of them speak English. Whoop-dee-doo. Anyway, Afghanistan will be one to watch. It It isn't over. It's no, it's not, not over. over. In fact, it's just this. It may seem like it's ending. It is just beginning. Stay tuned. Well, and then the question is, how much are people going to pay attention to this when the story isn't the the panic to get out anymore? That's, yeah. That's they'll, the they'll pay attention when ISIS start lighting off in places. Yeah. I love you know, 1999, 2001. So, and that's probably, you mean West coast ISIS anyway, um, (laughs) ISIS KKK, whatever they're called. Uh, that, yeah, that, that could really get messed up pretty easy. Anyway, uh, speaking of messed up, uh, (laughs) pandemic response here in Ontario, uh, we're seeing cases kind of slowly tick up again. We're seeing vaccinations plateau. The other day, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, because apparently, you know, Doug Ford doesn't care about the pandemic anymore. Uh, so it's all up to Dr. Moore to make these announcements. But he announced the last mile strategy to get the last 25, 20, 25 percent of people vaccinated. However, uh, the increasing call is for vaccine certificates, a.k.a. vaccine passports. This seems to be going nowhere fast in Ontario. So now some public health units are sort of taking it upon themselves to um, organize their own sort of vaccine certif- certification system. And this is why we have um, the University Health Network saying that any staff that doesn't get vaccinated will be terminated. You have the Blue Jays and the Toronto International Film Festival saying, hey, you want to come to any of our events? You've got to be vaccinated. Uh, you have the TTC and Metrolink saying, hey, if you want to drive for us or work for us, you got to get vaccinated. It just, you know, it really does feel like the Ontario government is uh, really behind everyone. And that's not the place you want the government in a situation like this. How much of the base are they trying to please with this? I was trying to figure this out. It's like, I what, don't know. <clears throat> what could that percentage possibly be? It's not high. 
you know, if it's if these things are supposed to be majority rules, most people are okay with it, right? So rather than have this hodgepodge that's whether it's the J's or your job or whatever, and you're gonna have to have like twenty QR codes on your phone and a whatever and your wallet, I have no idea. Well, th- this is the problem. Mm-hmm. We've even seen it for you know colleges and universities as of late, where there's going to be well, you need to provide proof. We're not sure how yet in mm-hmm. in places. But it was uh, there was a to bring it right to to town. There was a, a town hall at U of G, and it was mentioned by the new president Charlotte Yates, saying that you know, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but she kind of implied that it would be easier if the province came up with a vaccine. Yeah. Pass. So you could just go around and say, okay, I'm good to go. Instead, it's like 10,000 different approaches to this, right? And as we know, as you said, um, cases going up. I think the, what was it? The word making the rounds is grim, categorized mm-hmm. as grim. It's going to be a grim fall and winter, I think Moore mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. That's not good. And we are, the numbers are ticking up now. They always couch it in, well, it's it's mostly unvaccinated people. That does, I mean, it matters to a degree. But it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, if the number's ticking up, the number is ticking up. And if, if as they say, uh, the, the vaccines are kind of wearing off, I don't know how much weight is on that yet. Mm-hmm. It's not going to matter. The vaccine, at some point, since we've all been vaccinated, it's not going to matter whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. It's just, well, if it's wearing off, then everybody's going to start getting delta or epsilon or omega or whatever's going right so the the feeling is that the, and particularly for the the post labor day school rollout that there is no plan there are there's a patchwork of plans or certain things are going to be implemented but there's no no one is going into september with confidence i don't think i haven't heard it i haven't heard anybody say it well except maybe <laughs> some political types but i haven't heard Anybody say it, everything is going to be hunky dory in, in September? It's just not on, right? No, and the piecemeal thing is is like really huge because you just it helps to have it. I mean, it it would really help if the the federal government came out and do this. But I mean, at the same time, I also know why um the federal government is hesitant to get involved uh because you know so long as justin trudeau is the prime minister you're going to have certain people um with the initials jk and sm uh especially who are going to like shirk any reasonable request because it comes from trudeau so like feeling that we we do sort of need a province-wide test and i wonder like if this is going to be one of those things where the Ford government is going to have to get slapped around with it for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then they will come out like sometime in the second week of September. It's like, guess what, everybody? Vaccine passports. Look at this wonderful thing we've invented. And then, you know, everyone's kind of looking at them through, you know, these bloodshot eyes because they've been under stress for all this time. Yeah. The grumpy cat face, right? It'll be like the grumpy cat. Yes, exactly. The grumpy cat face, because that's my grumpy face right now. Yeah, it just (laughs) makes it so easy. And you know, they're already basically promoting a vaccine passport anyway. That you know, that piece of full scap you get that says you got vaccinated, which uh, is definitely absolutely tamper proof. But um, 
Yeah, it really needs to come from the highest authority, which is the province. And I do wonder, too, like, how much of this is political? I mean, last week they kicked out Rick Nichols, um, who, you know, came out to the the White House, the White House, (laughs) (laughs) the Queen's Park Press, the Queen's Park Media Studio. And he gets up and he says, like, me and my wife have both done our research and we've decided not to get the vaccine because of our freedoms. Basically, that was the too long didn't read of it. And it, and then he gets, you know, he's kicked out of caucus. And it's like, okay, that was bold, shrewd. You're sending a definite message. And of course, what, mm-hmm. does, Nichols, what does Nichols do like his first weekend out of the kicked out of the Tory office? He goes to a People's Party event where, oh, sadly, most of the people who are anti-vaccine and anti-mask kind of hang he's out. He's found his true home. I don't like, know, but well, he's, he's also said he's not running again. Yeah. So, like... I mean, yeah. <laughs> I guess if he can't be in government masks. I had to mute on and I'm like, who, who's this guy? I had no yeah. idea. Right. So it doesn't backbencher comes out. You know, th- th- this is his. It's not even 15 minutes. It's more like four minutes. Right. He's, it's never going to amount to anything. Mm-hmm. Never did before. It doesn't matter. I mean, it, it doesn't matter to a degree because, like you say, they're they're enforcing this policy that mm-hmm. they're adamant. It's like this needs to happen. Yeah, yet, the wide open spaces of the rest of the province, whether it's businesses or you name it, uh, and and the if I understand it right, the municipalities have come out. Well, they're like joint statements saying, you know, we really would like a vaccine pass. There's 444 municipalities in Ontario, yeah, and they've said we want this. Yeah. Now, do you? I mean, Doug Ford seems to have a hate on for municipalities, particularly Toronto. So if John Corey <laughs> is the main spokesperson on it, he will just do the opposite because he dislikes the guy that much. They pretend to collaborate on stuff or try to, but you know, there, there's there's bad blood there, right? Well, so I don't yeah. know if that's part of it. It's like you've got every single municipality which the province is in charge of officially. Like, well, let, let's be France. honest. The the bad blood is that John Tory beat Doug Ford in 2014. That's the bad blood. That's the source of the bad blood. It's right. <laughs> it has it has nothing to do with anything John Tory like said or did. But at Doug this point, you're the premier of the province. Can you not just let that go? Like, no, he can't let it go. It, it, well, first, and this seeing hashtag where's Doug Ford trending was was uh, pretty on point. Although I heard, I think he's in Rainy River, but I didn't see it. There was no presser or anything. If there was, it was very staid. So I don't know. No, he's doing he's like kind of like social media, of, yeah. right? He's been yeah. he must be. Yeah, that's unofficial, but it's. I think the the higher ups, the powers that be, would say Doug, lay low, Jason, lay low, because you know, we want right. to uh, right. That's I mean that's I think that's what's going on here. The thing of it is though, there's a genuine crisis happening here, and I cover this stuff, and I've been I follow Queens Park announcements on this, not like new restrictions and things. I couldn't tell you exactly. Who has been put on the list of having to get a vaccine and who ha- is like kind of like, you know, it would be not, like there are these various lists kind of going around. You should get a vaccine because you work in this area. You work in our school. So maybe you don't need to get a vaccine. <laughs> it's it's really like kind of slipshod. It's not very clear. And I understand why people are concerned and what it needs is like a singular voice a singular sing, singular clarity singular vision that's not kieran moore's job kieran moore is there to take nerd stuff and details from like the science table and translate it for the political branch in the form of like uh 
recommendations to carry on with. He's not supposed to be the spokesperson for the uh, government of Ontario. But he, at this point, he might as well go into the premier's office and start signing stuff because he's clearly in charge of the province. All I've seen in the last month is Kieran Moore. I bet he's got a really nice chair. <laughs> have a nice chair so it might be worth uh, <laughs> might be worth taking them up on that. But yeah, it's we're, we're at the point now where Dr. Uni, another one of the voices, like the, he, I heard this today, that he said that the rate has to be higher. The mm-hmm. vaccine, even though we're at 75% fully vaccinated in the province, which is really, really good. Mm-hmm. But it needs to be better and also needs to include younger people. I think he was implying or actually said the under 12s. Until that starts happening, it's like we're just going to see these cycles. What was it Moore said today? Like another six months? Like I remember hearing another mm-hmm. six months six months ago, right? So we should probably stop with that kind of like, well, it could, it's gonna, it could be this long. It could be that long. Just as many people need to get vaccinated, but they still have to behave as well. Well, so and the terrible excuse is you can't. To me, no one can say, "Oh, well, I don't really want to anymore." That's yeah. not good enough. You either have to come at me with like a religious excuse or a human rights reason, a rational one, and a defensible or a medical one. reason. Oh no, seriously, right? I'm, yeah, everybody is at the limit on this, mm-hmm. and I'm tired of of hearing the whining on the opposite side. And it's not even the opposite side because it's not an even opposite. It is a minority. And if I mean, you know me, I'm all for minority rights. But in this <laughs> case, in this case, right? This mm-hmm. is public health. Get it together. And like I said, I don't know. I mean, I what power do I have? I don't really have any, right? I just we talk about this on the radio, but I'm this fed up. You're fed up. <laughs> Everybody's fed up. Get it together, province. I don't know. I don't know what we have to do. Well, I, I really don't know. How this is going to end. To wrap this up there, just like a couple things. Number one is that there are people who don't have any particular, like they have antipathy, not antipathy about the vaccines, but they have apathy. Like they will go when like kind of people make them. It's like, like, okay, there's vaccine certificates now. So you have to get a vaccine. And at that point, those people will decide, all right, fine. I'll go get one. If it'll make you happy. Like (laughs) kind of like the old fifties dad style kind of thing. But, and then the other thing (laughs) is like, Public health is saying, like, we have to have 90% of the total population vaccinated to achieve herd immunity now. So 90% of the total population. And we already know there's a pretty huge portion of the population that can't get vaccinated mm-hmm. right now, just like kids under 12. So we're going to have to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back with uh, our first interview of the 2021 unexpected federal election. Mm-hmm. You are listening to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio.
And that was our Royal Cat Records pick of the week. Royal Cat Records, 21 McDonnell, the little big record store in the downtown. And that was a mashup of sorts. <laughs> Danish Radio Big Band. It's amazing that Danish Radio still has a uh, big band. Uh, featuring the late Charlie Watts, who died this week at the age of 80. Drummer for the Rolling Stones. But his true love, supposedly, was jazz, as you heard there. And that was from an album called Live at the Danish Radio Concert Hall, Copenhagen, 2010. And the song was completely recognizable because it was like the Austin Powers version of Rolling Stones' Saddest Faction. Saddest in brackets. I don't know what they mean by that, but... Mm. Well, there's only so many times you can play Honky Tonk Woman before it loses all meaning, so... Yes! I think it lost all of its meaning probably in about 1970, five minutes after it was released. But I guess we, you know, for another day. <laughs> for another day. Uh, Scotty, you actually did this first interview for the 2021 federal election. So why don't you introduce it? Out of the gate, yes. Fi- finally mastered all the at-home tools. Uh, I spoke <laughs> to Tristan Deneen, the candidate for the Communist Party of Canada, in the writing of Guelph in this election. And uh, we had a good chat. And let's let's play that. <laughs> I wasn't ready for <laughs> up there. Let's get to that now, Adam. <laughs> All right, let's hit play on the interview with Tristan Deneen. I'm joined by Tristan Deneen. Tristan is the Communist Party candidate for election 2021 in the riding of Guelph. Thanks for joining us today, Tristan. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you very much, Scotty. So for the people that might not know who you are, and although you have you were in a previous uh, federal campaign in 2015. This is true. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, maybe a little micro bio so people can learn a bit about you. Well, yes, I'm actually from Guelph. Like I've, I grew up, grew up here and everything. I went to school here. I uh, went to the university here. Uh, basically, I uh, did like most of my education here and then did a bunch of, uh, you know, I've worked with Oprah Guelph. I've worked with various, uh, you know, social justice coalition. I've worked with like various campaigns throughout the years and, uh, you know, around a lot of issues, most recently indigenous solidarity with regard to the, uh, you know, the horrific, uh, you know, uh, situation where they're, you know, finding all these, the bodies at the residential schools this year. And of course uh, I was part of those demonstrations, but, um, you know, I've, I've also been an ESL teacher. I've, you know, uh, worked overseas uh, quite a bit, spent quite a few years as a expat. And uh, so I've, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've had quite a, I, w- I would call a broad range of experience. Maybe it's something that uh, other people may not have had in terms of the, uh, some of this stuff. It's, once again, it's hard to kind of judge these sorts of things. You know, talking about yourself is very mm-hmm. hard. <laughs> yeah, we always put people on the hot seat right right off the bat. No, it's, it's just, true. But, but yeah, it, it, it can be difficult, especially in these times, because I'm sure if, if uh, like people around town, if it was normal times, would probably recognize you for sure. I mean, that, yeah, I mean, what, like, obviously, I have ran before in 2015. And like, I was I've been part of the Communist Party for about 10 years now. So uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's not like I'm, I'm coming into this uh, fresh or anything, right? Like, this is a uh, definitely something I've committed been committed to for a long time. For sure. And that, that's something I wanted to ask you about as well. The I think communist candidates are unique and people that vote communist for that matter, because there's always this, there are people that will vote for any party, but they're never considered like no one would say you're NDP or you're, you're a green, 
But right. it seems to be when people vote communist or run as a communist, it's always you are the communist. Yeah, like, <laughs> do you do you find do you find that it's no no it's true. I mean, yeah. like you know, you were identified with this ideology, right? Like it, it goes mm-hmm. beyond just being a part of like an organization, right? It's like you know, you actually stand for this particular ideology, like for for better or for worse, you know, like depending on like you know people's point of view. Obviously, they're gonna have very different opinions about what that that means and like uh, you know what that means uh, from I don't know a moral standpoint. Uh, depending on what judgment they want to make. But I mean, yeah, it's it's like you're part of something. You believe in something. You stand for something, you know, something with a, with a history. I mean, we just had the 100th anniversary of the uh, the Communist Party's founding uh, just this past, it was the last week of May. Na- re- 1921 uh, was when uh, we were founded here in mm-hmm. this uh, this town, the Communist Party of Canada. So, I mean, there's a, there's a whole history, one of the oldest parties in this country. And we were illegal when we were founded. Uh, that's why it was such a clandestine, kind of uh, founding founding meeting if you know what i mean just like in a barn you know on the what was then the edge of guelph mm-hmm. is now metcalf street uh but it's like like yeah we we were founded under very specific historical conditions and we kind of had to like fight every step of the way since then for like you know recognition to like keep our place in you know be on the ballot be uh, a legal political party um and just have our voice heard like it's, it's really been kind of a battle and we've kind of been part of this this struggle from day one, and I think if you're if you are part of that, I mean you you're a part of something, you know, you're a part of this is really a big part of who you are. Uh, maybe like more so than say with uh, other political parties, we kind of had that unique kind of experience. Yeah, that, that that's true. And I mean, speaking of experience, to uh, to touch on your leader Liz Rowley for a moment, I was I kind of always remember hearing about her because she was the i guess she was the president of the uh ontario wing well but she's been in politics probably longer than most of the leaders have been alive is that right like she's um, been i i like i'm not sure the exact uh i think like, well i think she started in the, the 60s right but yeah so yeah. it's like she's definitely been in the game a very long time a long so, time yeah yeah so and that's um, and i think that is what is what is unique about your party is that it has a long chain that began here in town, as you said, and I don't think people realize that they're always like, "Well, why? Why is the communists running in Guelph?" Like, well, because they always run in Guelph, right? For sure. <laughs> so things have changed a little bit, obviously, in the hundred years from the whole, let's just say, the classic "Workers of the World Unite" vision that people have. I think when they think communist, they think a line directly from the Communist Manifesto, right? The "Workers yeah, of the World Unite." But your yeah. your policy documents this time around. The uh, slogan, for lack of a better word, is for a people's recovery from capitalist crisis. And I guess that's something that communists see that hasn't really changed is that capitalism has always been in crisis. And in times like these two, where things are just, there's been so much upheaval with COVID and, mm-hmm. and all the things that are going on in the world that this this time, probably even more so than the most recent elections that we've had, that the crisis yeah. is very widespread. Uh, this is very true. I mean, this is not something we've talked about this kind of thing before, like people's recovery and uh, whatnot. I think we started using that term around the time of the financial crisis around 2009, right? Mm-hmm. 2008, 2009. That was like kind of when, uh, you know, like basically the economy's in free fall and we're talking about like, you know, kind of coming back from that. Like, what do we need to come back from that in a, uh, a just recovery that actually will see to the needs of, of working class people, right? I mean, like, what, what do they actually need, you know, in terms of the kind of policies and whatnot? But obviously, I would say like it even applies even more like right now. I mean, in the context of the pandemic and the well, the devastation 
that is uh, caused to so many people. Like the fallout of of that, like goes beyond like just simple like the uh, you know body counts or or whatnot. I mean that that's still like twenty six thousand people around that in uh, in Canada. If I if I get the latest figures uh, correct, like uh, that's absolutely terrifying. But but of course beyond that, you have like tens of thousands more people who got sick. You know, people who lost their jobs. Um, you know, economy downsizing. You know, like all this sort of stuff. Like is just you know compacted into one kind of nightmare situation that people are dealing with right now. And you can't deal with that with like just piecemeal kind of, kind of changes here. You have to have a kind of a systemic approach to this, right? It, Cause it impacts like so many different things. It impacts like jobs, healthcare, the environment. Um, all these things are intertwined and, and you're just like, you know, you, you have to have a systemic approach. And I think that we have that. And if I was going to go with something that maybe like really sets the communist party apart, apart from say like the green party or the NDP is the fact that we have this kind of integrated holistic, maybe is a, a good word to use approach in terms of how we, uh, how we want to deal with this crisis situation that people are in. And it's really uh, kind of devastating so many people's lives right now. And we need some pretty uh, stringent measures and uh, a combined strategy in order to uh, address this. And that, I think that's the classic vision that people have, of the communist party in terms of, or a communist approach anyways, the, I guess the classic term would be the command economy approach. And as you said, all of the uh, issues kind of cross over, but for you and for communism, I guess it would be the majority of control would be uh, government and steering probably all of those factors that you mentioned. It's like, well, yeah, the grand I mean, like, plan, let's say. Yeah. Like a plan. Right. I mean, basically a planned economy that that uh, that basically re- like revolves on democratic input, mm-hmm. like overall, like the, like and especially that is crucial in a country like this. I mean, we're talking like a country where, uh, you know, colonialism is uh, is still very much entrenched. It needs to be that's one of the things that needs to be uprooted and destroyed, really, uh, if we want to have like real progressive change here. And, uh, you know, so, of course, we have, we're also talking like, you know, respect for indigenous rights here. You can't just like go in and like just dictate to people. Like what they need to do, how they want to run their, um, you know, uh, economic and uh, political uh, interactions, especially when you're dealing with like people who have like have been here for thousands and thousands of years since time immemorial. They have their own way of doing things and they need to do things for themselves. So and that sovereignty needs to be respected. So you can't just have this this blanket, just kind of, uh, you know, command top down kind of model. It has to be uh, consultative, it has to be like from the from the grassroots, it has to be, uh, you know, there, there does have to be major regulation, of course, but there also has to be like massive democratic input for all, for all this, uh, this to really be functional. And I think that's something that maybe certain people miss about, uh, about what we stand for. Uh, because of course, like that, that's the way it is in, in, in countries like Cuba, for example. I mean, like, you know, there, there's major, if you want to have like a, uh, you know, any sort of, um, change i mean they had like a major update to their constitution like a few years ago like the amount of public meetings the amount of like consultation they did is just absolutely incredible and if you compare that to say with the canadian constitution which is basically drafted by like the premiers and uh pierre trudeau in a, in a closed room back in the early 1980s you know really no uh consultative like assembly or like a legislative assembly being enacted to actually get opinions from the people it was basically a very top-down thing uh no indigenous people involved and like, that is frankly not the way to draft a constitution. Like if you want it to be considered democratic and so, and the same thing with the, the economy, right? With the economic planning, like there has to be consultation. There has to be regular consultation. Unions have to be involved. 
women have to be involved. Indigenous people have to be involved. Like, you know, all the different people who have been oppressed by, by this, the capitalist system, they have to be empowered through this process. Sounds like a like, grand coalition or a big umbrella. Like to a large extent it is like we stand for not, not just working class people, but also for oppressed people. Like we want to fight basically for their rights, for their sovereignty, for their self-determination. And uh, this is also something we've been doing like for the last hundred years. I mean, basically, if you want to know the difference between Marxism, classical Marxism and Marxism, Leninism, like that's pretty much the key difference is the fact like Marxism, Leninism also stands against colonialism in a very clear, you know, that's an integral part of like the entire project. Um, you know, classical Marxism was more like, okay, it was more like uh, focused on uh, just the working class, right? So it kind of, you know, Marxism and Lenin was kind of branched out a little bit. That's another thing like a lot of people are not maybe so familiar with. And I think that's one of the reasons why it applies. Marxism and Leninism applies to the situation in Canada, right? Because, I mean, we're dealing with it. This is a settler colonial country and the fight against colonialism is very, has to be very central. You, you mentioned Trudeau Sr. there, and it's interesting, uh, even just this morning, uh, on Twitter, which is, well, Twitter is Twitter, but I, I saw not only Trudeau Sr., but uh, Justin Trudeau being referred to as commies in some of the feeds, which oh I'm sure God. communists probably get a laugh out of that because like, there's no, you know, there's no way. But but like, in, in speaking ridiculous. about Pierre Elliott Trudeau, he's, he's credited with creating Canada's initial relationship with China back in the early 70s. And there's a lot to that story. I guess we won't get too into it. But of course, now we know that the relationship with China, which is the world's largest communist nation, has soured. It's it it's not a very good relationship right now. Now, as you had said, you'd spend some time in other places in the world. I, I, I'm, am I right that one of those places was China? So you have, it was. It, yeah. Indeed, that's true. So you have, you see, you have some experience there. In, mm-hmm. in your view, and maybe in relation to your party's view, what do you think would improve the relationship with China and kind of create a better relationship than what we're seeing today? Well, you see, this, this comes down to the, the heart of what we're talking about when it comes to foreign policy, right? Like the idea of a foreign policy that centers uh, peace and disarmament and a, uh, you know, respect for the self-determination of uh, different countries is, is something that we, we definitely stand for. And I think that that is the thing which is... Um, this is what reduces tensions. This is what prevents war, you know, like not standing for like, uh, you know, like a, a foreign policy, which, which hinges upon, uh, say, NATO and military alliances and, uh, you know, arms buildups and going along more or less with uh, basically in law except with what with American foreign policy, which is what Canada has really been doing. They tried to keep that maybe a little more like on the down low uh, during the Trump administration. But basically, Trudeau was going along with more or less whatever the U.S. government was, was dictating. Uh, with regards to like, you know, you know, escalating the military buildup in the South China Sea, for example, you know, arms sales to Taiwan, uh, you know, putting military forces on China's doorstep, which is, that is not something that's going to de-escalate the situation or make uh, war any less, uh, you know, like less likely. Do you think if Meng Wanzhou, the ongoing case right now, was was released and yep. the that case was brought to a close, do you think that that might kind of ease tensions a little bit it, it would and uh let's remember like the reason why uh Meng Wanzhou is in jail is because uh you know she's accused of vi- violating um illegal uh u.s sanctions on iran sanctions which are not recognized by the u.n or the international community and basically it's once again canada kind of playing ball with the u.s government uh detaining her at a uh you know at, in vancouver airport you know like this is uh 
once again at the behest of uh, of the U.S. government and, and like of a of a policy of sanctions we shouldn't even be part of, right? I mean, we we basically are not. Uh, we shouldn't be facilitating these kind of U.S. policies. It's the same thing. We shouldn't be playing ball uh, with the U.S. when it comes to like their sanctions on, say, Venezuela or uh, Cuba, for example, which, you know, like that's doing real damage to people's lives. They can't get access to like, um, you know, enough food or enough like uh, enough you know, pharmaceutical drugs, you know, like cancer treatments, you know, and people are actually dying because they don't have access to these things because of sanctions. Uh, this is not these are not policies we should be going along with. And uh, the same, of course, would go for uh Israel, Palestine, the same would go but with uh, Canada's relationship with Saudi Arabia and what it's doing in Yemen, like us giving all these guns, these weapons, tanks, and all this, uh, this stuff to basically a, a genocidal uh, government and what it's doing to its neighboring uh, country there. These are not things we should be involved in. If we want to really, the Canadian government claims to stand for human rights, you know, all around the world and, and kind of be this shining beacon. But if it's a uh, you know, following these kind of foreign policies and supporting these kind of governments overseas. And it's like uh, uh, ratcheting up tensions and like, uh, you know, playing ball with the U.S. no matter what the U.S. does, no matter how violent the U.S. gets. That's blatant hypocrisy. And people will see right through that. So in your view, Canada would be better off if it wasn't in lockstep with uh, U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. And that's uh, that regards to like many, many uh, different countries. If you want to like talk about Afghanistan, you want to talk about Haiti, you want to talk about like, you know, Haiti, when, of course, like the uh, Canada played a very integral role in the military coup, which took down an elected government in 2004. Uh, once again, totally in uh, lockstep with the U.S. Like that's uh, that's not a role we, we should be playing. So to bring it a little uh, closer to home and because we well, we've both attended uh, University of Guelph and the station operates out of the university. Let's turn to education now. And okay. I was going to ask you in terms of programs and policy, and I, I understand with the communist policy this time around, and I guess always that you feel that education from, let's say, kindergarten until you've completely finished your education should be free for all Canadians. Yes, uh, that is something we've, we've, we've stood for that for a very, very long time. And I think like, I don't know if I want to go back all the way to the inception, but like more or less, I mean, uh, and I was at a time when uh, education in this country was definitely not free. Mm-hmm. Like you're going back to like the 1920s or 30s. I mean, like uh, when we were standing for free education, this is when you could not go to like high school for free or um, even lower levels, I think. I mean, you even had to pay. So it's like this, this is something that's kind of been part of our, our, our roots, like in terms of standing for um, access to education, right? Like free access to education, doesn't matter what your income level is. Or uh, what background you come from, or uh, whatnot. You should have access to that education. It should be free of charge. It should be accessible um, at every level. And I think that that's a pretty fundamental thing. I mean, that ties in, frankly, with the uh, the UN Charter even mm-hmm. uh, for human rights. And like, I think it was. I'm pretty sure it actually was the Soviet Union that got that in to the UN Charter. In fact, like in the uh, in the aftermath of World War II, and so that was kind of like a socialist demand that got included in the uh, in the foundation of the UN. Um, so this has always been kind of central to, um, to socialism in general, I would say like around the world. And like, you see like the various gains that socialist countries have, uh, have made and in terms of education and in terms of like eradicating illiteracy, for example, uh, this is something that was especially impressive in places like, uh, Cuba, Vietnam, formerly colonized countries where illiteracy rates used to be extremely high and education virtually, virtually non-existent. That was totally turned around by the, uh, the various uh, revolutions that took place. And the number one priority basically was education. When it comes to policy right now in Canada, I mean, that there are some parallels in terms of like, well, I mean, you look at the situation with student debt right now. 
and the burden that is on on people and the fact like uh, you know people have to really look into their their future and uh, before they even go to university and wonder like you know how am i going to pay this off how am i going to deal with this how am i going to you know navigate the uh, the interest rates and all the things i'm going to have to face like for the next like several decades maybe even before i can finally be be in the clear like that should not be a burden that people carry and um and you know we like of course like i could go on and on talking about like you know privatization of the of of universities and privatization of these various uh, on-campus services and like these things which people have to increasingly pay for out of pocket which uh, either used to be for free or like you know at least they were they were much more accessible um, back in the days where you, you could still get grants for education you know this is not rocket science we know what to do to fix this and and the same thing like you know you look at like the the, the amount of like you know budgets that have been cut for like a lot of different programs i mean i think uh I, I, I don't know like exactly on this, but like they they're trying now to bring back the women's studies program at the University of Guelph or something like that. Like, but of course that was like cut back to nothing about ten years ago, mm-hmm. right? And it's like uh, you know these 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 programs which are not seen as they're not seen as profitable. Engineering or like agriculture might be seen as profitable, but like some like you know women's studies isn't going to be seen as profitable. I think the problem at election time is that when education comes up it sort of gets padded down to like, well, that's a provincial responsibility when they, people don't want right. to talk about they, it. But there is quite a bit of federal money goes into uh, Canadian universities for, you know, varying degrees of, of course, of uh, investment, like say whether and a lot of and a ton of private money as well. But mm-hmm. so in, in your view, that should just be removed and education completely supported by I would imagine all levels of government, right? Well, yeah, and of, and of course, like once again, you have you have the democratic accountability there too. Like it's like uh, it would be very nice if uh, universities were not run by totally unelected uh, governing bodies, you know, which are elected by nobody and you know accountable to nobody effectively. Uh, often drawn from from businesses, big business. Like, are these the kind of people who can effectively make uh, decisions on uh, what is best for students? Like, I don't think so. So, just something else, but a bit more nationwide, of course, is the. Uh climate crisis and as we've seen oh, in yeah. the west and in other parts of canada and actually at one point guelph was overwhelmed by the smoke of the forest fires of northern ontario which seemed yes. to surprise a lot of people <laughs> and i noticed in your uh, platform that another uh, slogan was this kind of changed rather than just people before profit is now saying people and nature before profit which is a yes. bit of a change you have this there's, yes. there's quite an extensive let's call it a green uh, approach now because i think when people think communism they think gears and industry and factories mm. and belching smoke but that <laughs> in 2021 is not necessarily the case is it no that's that's absolutely not where we're at right now i mean we're basically what we need now is a transition away from those kind of like say uh technologies you know that were fossil fuel powered i mean let's be let's be uh, clear about that and um, we need to basically retool the entire economy uh, in a like as soon as we can. We're talking like crash program uh, level. Um, like we look at the the science where it stands right now and how critical this is. What a critical moment! I was just looking at the uh, news today and like uh, we got rainfall on uh, in the middle of Greenland uh, on the highest uh, point on the ice cap. It is now it's not snowing. It is raining in the and that's uh, never happened. In, in the has it? Summer. Yeah. That has never happened before. Mm. In uh, they have never recorded that, that before, of, yeah. and uh, we just see the temperatures climbing and climbing and climbing. We see the forest fires. We see BC in particular getting devastated by this. I mean, it's the entire West Coast, both Canada and the United States. But it's just that all around the world, like we're seeing just the devastating effects of that. We're seeing that in Algeria. We're seeing that in Greece. We're seeing that in Turkey. We're seeing that um, in all these different places. Certain places where like everything's burning up. Other places where like it's like a deluge. You know, like you just get like massive flooding. 
which was the case in China, very recently in central China, in terms of the level of flooding they haven't seen in like, you know, 100 years. This is the kind of uh, extreme weather patterns that we're seeing. And uh, we, we know what's behind it. We know that uh, the science is very, very clear at this point. I mean, it's, it's been cross-checked. It's been like uh, developed. It's been like uh, confirmed in a million different ways. It's just, we have to take really radical steps right now if we want to reduce the emissions to a level where we can still more or less keep things under control. And um, that is going to take a concerted policy. That is going to take a systemic policy. We're talking like we got to cancel pipelines right away. We got to like cut the military budget, which is a huge emission factor. I think it was the U.S. military, which is like bigger than uh, bigger polluter than like 100 different countries like combined. Uh, it's the biggest single emitter in the world. And Canada's military, of course, uh, you know, now we have expanding, massively expanding budgets to accommodate new warships, fighter planes, things like that. That's something that's a major emitter that needs to be cut back as well. And there needs to be hard caps on emissions. As I said before, a crash uh, program in green energy development around the country that needs to be planned. You know, it can't be a piecemeal thing. It can't be like just based on, say, giveaways to business or like uh, business subsidies and hoping that they do the right thing. That's not the way things work. Uh, we can't rely on the profit motives to do this for us. It has to be a planned thing. Because, uh, yeah, it's all about retooling. It's all about building mass transit systems, discouraging automobile use by putting in uh, alternatives to that. Like this has to happen at every level. So you, you cannot simply approach this. And this is what I was saying at the beginning of the show. You can't simply approach this by like kind of piecemeal things here. Like, okay, we're going to do this here. We're going to do this here. We're going to give subsidies here. We're going to, you know, encourage people to retrofit their homes like over here. Uh, that's not going to, that's not going to cut it. Right. Like there needs to be a, a full on uh, just countrywide approach uh, to this. If we want to get to where we, we really need to be. Well, we, we've covered a lot of turf there, Tristan. And uh, unfortunately, believe it or not, we're out of time. Mm. So before, <laughs> but before we go, uh, can you let people know if they want to find out more about yourself and the Communist Party, where they can look for that? Okay. Well, of course, I do have my, my Facebook page, uh, Tristan Deneen, if you want to look at that. But I mean, probably the best place to go is uh, votecommunist, all one word, dot com. Uh, so vote, yeah, votecommunist, all one word, dot com. And uh, that is basically where you're going to find the, the platform. That's where you're going to find all the different uh, candidates, all their bios, where they're running. Uh, if you have one near you, uh, this kind of thing. And uh, just give you all the details about, like, uh, about, uh, about what to expect. Just to completely wrap up, can you tell the people of Guelph why they should vote for you and the Communist Party on September 20th? Uh, I'm going to say because uh, strategic voting has not gotten you where you need, where you really want to be. I mean, we know where that leads us. We know that that has led to uh, some pretty incredible acts of deception. Um, I mean, we've seen what the liberals kind of did last time. They, uh, they promised all kinds of things in the last election. They promised like a nation to nation relationship with indigenous people. Uh, they promised UNDRIP. They promised democratic reform, all kinds of radical action on climate change. It never happened. Uh, Childcare. They're promising that again. You know, and 10 uh, paid days of sick leave, you know, this sort of thing. Uh, and, and you got to ask yourself, can you believe them? Because it seems all they do each time. And, uh, you know, they do this, the conservatives do this. They basically uh, will tell you whatever they want, you know, whatever they feel they, they have to tell you to get elected. And then they just like, it's like, okay, now we're in power. We don't have to listen to any of this. And we just see this again and again. And we, the only way we're going to change that is if we, we get votes to uh, basically away from those two parties. We get uh, other voices 
in Parliament. We get a, a really strong pushback against that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of deception, like that kind of politics that takes people for granted, takes voters for granted, and uh, that really holds people. Uh, we need to really hold politicians accountable. And well, if you've got a uh, communist party, um, you know, member in in Parliament, that's exactly what they're going to do. Right. Well, thanks for joining us today, Tristan. We will. Well, we I guess we won't. See, we'll see you in the virtual campaign trail, I suppose. So. Well, we're gonna. Yeah, we're gonna see how this goes. Right. This is gonna be a different sort of campaign, no doubt. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank you very much. So once again, that was Tristan Deneen. One down, five to go. Um, we're going to have Josh Lyer, I think is how you pronounce his name. We'll get that verified when we have him on the show next week. He's running for the People's Party here in this election, which is and we're now- yeah, hoping to have a full slate of interviews this time around, right? The all can literally all candidates. We have everyone we know about booked, so if uh, you are someone we don't know about, um, <laughs> get in touch with us ASAP. Anyway, uh, we're going to have to wrap up the show for this week. Uh, we hope you liked it. We hope uh, you're glad we're back. And uh, we took a little bit of a summer break last week, but we are back, and we will keep we will keep broadcasting until they shut us down or until our next break. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. We're on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. You can listen to this show again by downloading it from our website every Monday, or you can get it through the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, or Spotify. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, and you can find my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Scotty Hertz on Twitter, and for all CFRU-related information beyond listening to this fine station here at 93.3, check out CFRU.ca. Adam, full mm-hmm. system shutdown. <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to say that. Initiate full system shutdown. Uh, that's just for Scotty. We still do have programming here on the station coming oh, up. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> DJ the mic walk away, yes. DJ sounds good to me is still here. She will be here at the top of the hour on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We'll be back next Thursday at 5 p.m. for more open sources and more candidate interviews. And we will see you then.